Hello and welcome to Off Track, the lockdown series. This evening, I'm going to be chatting to an ex-driver who has probably been one of the busiest people uh, during this period of lockdown, uh, 29 Ian Higgins. Ian, thank you for joining us this evening. Um, been very busy, a very busy man. Yeah, very busy man. Uh, not had time to get my hair cut yet, Jonathan. No. <laughs> but uh, no, I better give that back to the missus. <laughs> Don't want people to get the wrong idea. Uh, to be honest, You've got to make the best of it, haven't you, really? Um, you know, I've been stuck at home. Um, I've got elderly parents and Dennis uh, isn't always in the best of health. So I can't afford to risk it. So it gave me a chance to crack on with 15 years with the DIY, etc. It's, it's been brilliant. I mean, for those people who aren't uh, necessarily on your Facebook, every day you've done like a, a lockdown diary of what, what you've done. And it's, it's been like huge projects you've undertaken, not just you've not just mowed the grass. No, I've done quite a lot, to be honest, but one of the things that I regret from my racing days is I've never kept loads of photo albums and things like that, but with Facebook now, it's so easy. You can, like, sort an album out and, you know, like, even now, six years, something pops up and you go, oh, God, yeah, six years ago. Um, so I decided, once I started doing it, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it almost like a bit of a blog type thing. And the number of people that have said to me, oh, keep doing it, keep doing it. Um, so that's how it's gone, really. No, it's, it's very interesting, very interesting. Anyway, let's talk about stock cars. Let's, we'll start with stock cars. So um, you started your career back in 1982 in a Frankie Wayman senior hire car. So where did the initial interest come from? And, and did you enjoy it from the outset? Um, We've been spectators for quite a long time. I actually used to be the water boy for Alex McDade, who was 29 before me. Um, and my dad, Dennis, was the northern scribe for Stock Car Magazine. Yeah. So basically, Frank was building a new car, a new low-slung, low super-duper car. And we ended up going to the Wayman Farm um, for him to do a photo project on it, basically. And that's how we got to know Frank. And... Uh, I'd always wanted to race, you know. Um, my parents wouldn't let me do minis or anything like that. So uh, for my 17th birthday, they bought me uh, a going away in an car. Um, first meeting was Aircliff, loved it. Somehow off the back, managed to qualify for the final. Um, so absolutely loved it. Um, second and third meetings were Hartlepool's, um, which I hated. Um, in all honesty, I could have given up then, but. Uh, we're at Hartlepool, I'd come off after the heat or something, and uh, uh, Frank had come across everything all right, you know, and I went, don't like it. You know, I'm scared, to be honest. Um, they're coming past me like I'm stood still. So he said, well, you're going back out. Your old man's paid good money for this. Well, I literally strapped me in the car and almost followed me out onto the track. And <laughs> I went out and, uh, you know, sort of cracked on and, yeah, enjoyed it. Um so from then, after the initial nerves, et cetera, um, you know, it was just something I wanted to do. Yeah, brilliant. It's, it's quite interesting that you, you were nervous about it, you know, after the, after the, you know, the first race, do you know what I mean? Sort of the first meeting. Um, but then you carried on, which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say that the, the Wayman family are instrumental in, in Formula 1 stock cars. So how important were, were they in your Formula 1 career? In the early days, you know, we couldn't have done it without uh, old man Frank. You know, we had no garage. You know, mum and dad's business was uh, nursing homes um, and rest homes. So you couldn't really be firing up a VA Chevy out the back of a nursing home after you, 
half your residents have dropped down dead. So, um, in all honesty, you know, we couldn't have done it without Frank. Uh, you know, it was a two-way thing. We paid him. Um, but basically, even like young Frank, back then, he used to wash my car off after the weekend. We used to go up to the farm. I, I had every Wednesday off work, and Dennis did as well. And my mechanic back then, Rick, was unemployed. And we used to go up to the farm every Wednesday up to Silsden from York, work on the car, get everything done. And then Frank used to transport it and, you know, do everything that way. Yeah, so it was a brilliant help and support. Oh yeah, without him, we you know we wouldn't have been we wouldn't have been able to race. There's no two ways about it. Okay. So when you were racing, I'm not sure at what point this happened, but the nickname Captain Chaos. Where did that come from? Yeah, well, my first car, which was the X McDade car, um, I had a picture of Captain Beaky. I, you know, I've got a bit of a prominent. Uh, yeah, you as well, Jonathan. That's uh, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> right. Yeah, I've got a bit of a prominent feature. So we had Captain Beaky on the side of the car, and it actually came about. It was a Sheffield meet, and I can't, I can't remember when it was, but it was very. It was early in uh, the season, um, '83, I think, or possibly '84, and a particularly destructive Sheffield. Well, for me anyway. Um, you know, old man, old man Wayman was like, "Come on, we better go and shovel this all up again and everything." Anyway, by the time we got to the, the farm on the Wednesday. Somebody had crossed out the uh, beaky and written chaos. Uh, <laughs> so young Frank, it could have possibly been then, or old man Wayman. But yeah, it came from the Waymans basically. And um, was it something you thought this, this is something to kind of play on and and sort of use to become a bit of a character? Well, not initially. Um, it was just the way I drove, <laughs> and the car was just such a big, heavy car. You couldn't slow it down when you got to the corners. And if you take your foot down too hard, you know, it just... But very early on in my career, my dad said to me, do not be one of these drivers that pulls over. He said, I hate drivers that pull over. And I said, yeah, but what about the damage? He went, don't you worry about that, son. You know, I'll pay for that. So, uh, you know, that was it. I mean, I remember uh, when I had the McDade car, there was uh, a Rochdale. And uh, we, we were going around as best we could pretty quick, I thought. And there's a bang, and I look in the mirror, and it's Andy stopped. So I put the foot down a bit harder, bang again, and just managed to hold it. Third time, bang! All of a sudden, I'm like, "Oh, where am I? What am I?" And there's like wires here, literally at the front of the roll cage, and I'm I'm through through the fence, um, going by the Hornets Bend. Anyway, after the race, Andy Stock came across and he said, "Look, Ian," he said. I gave you two warnings. He said, if you'd have seen what was in my mirror, he said, I had no choice. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, once again, the car was shoveled off and <laughs> repaired. And, you know, but that, that was just how it was back then. Absolutely. So you've kind of, you've already kind of referenced it a little bit. Um, but you had a reputation as being a, a hard racer. So was that um, a conscious choice or was that just how naturally you drove? Um, it... It was difficult because, you know, I'd been watching the likes of Frank, Willie, Dave Meller, you know, Smithy, all these people from being a kid. And then all of a sudden you're out there racing with them. And at first it's like I, I used to look in the mirror and see Smithy coming, for instance, and I'd move over and watch him go past in awe. And, you know, and that's when Dennis sort of had a go at me. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, if I stick to inside, we'll get a load of damage. And he's like, sod the damage. So from then, basically, I... I did class myself as a fairly hard but fair driver. Um, the way I used to measure it was if my goggles came down, they were having it back. Um, 
which wasn't so bad at the start of the season, but you know, at the end of the year, when you've had the goggles on for a year, it only took a little tap and you dropped down. <laughs> so at the back end of the year, we got a bit worse. But no, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's a hard game in stock cars. And um, it's not a case of I'm big, this, that, the other, but you know, you give as good as you get, you know, and that was always my sort of saying, really. You know, I don't get mad, I don't forget, but I do get even. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and um, quite a few drivers that I've spoken to have said that, um, that if you race hard and fair, it does earn the respect of the the drivers around them, and it also it almost makes it a bit easier to race because you're not getting battered from pillar to post week in week out. And so, yeah. I think a lot of drivers knew if you came past me fair and square, then you know they, they weren't going to get it back. I mean, I, I remember Lundy saying to me once, he said, "I hate races against you," and he said, "Because like." I'll be lining you up for two laps. He said, and lap three, you'll take a totally different line to what you've been doing for two laps. He said, you know, you're just a nightmare to pass. Uh, but that's, you know, I, I was never a brilliant, brilliant driver. Um, you know, I think car setup has, has down quite a bit. You know, I, I had a reasonable ability. I always felt I could drive, which when I got onto a different formula, you know, I could mix it with the best people. But I struggled a little bit in, in the ones with... Um, the car set up just time I, you know we didn't have time to do the car we i was busy so yeah okay so you've mentioned a few drivers there um but driver rivalries are a fundamental part of, of stock car racing um so like did you have many rivalries with the drivers at the time you know in your height of your career uh i had spats i wouldn't say major rivalries you know i had spats with quite a few where uh, barry heath comes to mind me and had a bit of a do um George Oplin, um had a bit of a do with tapping. I suppose one of the, you know, both Frank Wayne Senior and Junior, I had big do's with them. Um, but I think almost the longest running one, I suppose, would have been with Lundy. Um, we had a bit to do in uh, 1985 where I took him out of the British drivers at Rochdale or 84 or something. Not intentionally, just that's how I was at the time. He sort of Never forgot it. Always gave me a bit of a hard time when he come past. And then one day, we're just minding our own business up at Aircliffe. I'm flying around. I'm second in the Grand National. And next thing, I'm up to the roll cage uh, <laughs> and in the wires. And it's like, what's all that about? So basically, I took my bat home. Um, I had to go at him. And then I had to go at George Braithwaite. And we had a bit of a spat went on for a while. Um, it actually... We sort of resolved it in the 88 World Final when I borrowed his car um, and we were talking about things afterwards. And I just said to him, John, why did you bury me at that Aircliffe? And he said, Ian, I thought you were winning. He said, I didn't realise Ian Smith was half a left ahead. He said, and it would have been my first 69. It would have been my first maximum. So he said, I literally threw it at you. Oh, you don't have to tell me. But like I said, if you'd have told me that 10 years ago, John, we wouldn't have had all this grief. But... Uh, <laughs> I didn't really have rivalries. You know, yeah. I used to enjoy racing with certain drivers. Rob Cowley, I loved racing with Rob Cowley uh, and a few others, but no real rivalries yeah. like some of them have now, you know. Uh, one of the problems was I sort of got branded as a, a Team Wayman member, so to speak, yeah. um, which to me was unfair because I'd bury Frank as much as I'd bury anybody else. Um, you know, the was it the 99 World Final that Murray won? I was accused of taking Lundy out. Um, I had his fans throwing beer bottles at me and also, really? yeah, believe it or not. But, you know, I spoke to John in the chip shop afterwards and said, do you think I took you out, John? And he went, no. And then when you watch the video, 
what it was is John was coming up on me. Uh, Ray Williams spun, and I had to throw it sideways to miss him, and John threw it as well. And John's back wheel caught my inside front bumper, which turned him right. So, oh, okay. but your fans don't see it that way. No, and no. Man, and I took out, uh, I took out John. So. Yeah. I, 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 to be fair, I had forgotten that. I do remember a, a little bit about that, but not obviously the, I guess the the this, what happened in the pits afterwards. Didn't know anything about that at all. So yeah, yeah, it's happened to me twice. Believe it or not, you know. Don't get me wrong. I love the F ones and I love the fans. But when I started racing rebels and uh, I raced at Coventry, I got a load of abuse in the pits. You know what you're doing in them pebbles, this, this, that, and the other. But you know, it's the way of the world. I got thick skin. It don't bother me. <laughs> Okay, so you, uh, with, my next question was about uh, the 1988 season. So you won the crew semi-final, um, yeah. and then you got fourth in the world at Hednesford, Um, But it wasn't in your car. You mentioned it was John's car. So, so how did that come about, especially if you'd been sticking each other in the fence for the past 10 years? Um, well, basically, what it boiled down to back then, we raced every week. You know, the week now, I think you have a week off before the world final, don't you? But I think it was uh, we were racing at Sheffield on the Sunday or Monday. And as usual, coming out by the pitch gate, back axle out, nerf rail off, this, this, that, the other, shovel it off in bits. Um, we got Brian Evans booked in to re-sign right it for the world final because I was on pole. Um, so we wanted, you know, when I was a kid and I went to like the world finals and they all came out with the grease tyres and like Cronny with his new paint job and stuff. So the world final was always something that I felt some effort should go into. But as it happened, we were that busy trying to repair the car. And then the Hennesford that year was a two-dayer. It was a Saturday-Sunday World Final. Um, and I couldn't get there on a Saturday. We were still repairing the car. Um, we got there Sunday morning and there was practice. Um, we fired the car up, took it off the bus, and it just stopped dead. And basically what happened in the accident at um, Sheffield, we had, like, the distributor was a magneto back then. It was a really big, tall thing. And as I hit the fence post and come to a stop, it had bent it and actually bent the shaft. So it had run until we got there, and then it just sheared and stopped. So basically, old man Wayman um, offered me his spare car. And John, you know, got to say, brilliant sportsman like, because we didn't particularly get on or anything, came across and said, Look, there's a Michelle car there if you want to use it. And at the time, you know, John was the man who was going to turn down the chance of racing. Uh, Lundy Shale car. So it was like, yep, yeah, we'll use John's car, which was all well and good because we were then rushing. We missed the grand parade on the back of the wagon and all this. We were rushing around, putting numbers on the car. I sat in the car, suddenly realised I couldn't reach the uh, steering properly. Um, and just as we were sort of getting everything ready, one of the Lundy's mechanics comes running across, nicks the mirror out of it. <laughs> it's like, what? He goes, oh, yeah, I'm just broken. He's with it. So I'm sat there. In outside of no, it's pole position, yeah, the final in a car I'd never driven, couldn't reach, and no mirror. <laughs> <laughs> you know that was uh, that was an experience. Yeah, were you nervous? <laughs> uh, I was too I was too flustered to be nervous, if you know what I mean. And everything was going on. It was you know uh, we we planned all sorts. We got the big hands and we'd done all that sort of thing and every. I didn't have time to think almost. It wasn't until I'm going around on that rolling lap and thinking, I can still picture it in my mind today, thinking, Shit, I'm going to have to jump this start because I don't know who's going to be eating me or whatever. And if you watch the video, I went like hell from word go. 
And I, I just remember going into the first corner, bracing my shoulders, and I was like really reaching the steering, thinking, oh my God, I've got round the first corner, it's like, oh, we're off. And you know, um, to be fair, it, you know, I, it was brilliant of John to do what he did. Yeah. Uh, I had a similar thing to the folding incident, really, where he'd agreed that, um, you know, he'd get half of, the, half of any money if I won any. Um, you know, and I agreed that we'd pay for any damage if we damaged it. And that's why I did the one race, to be honest, the world final. Yeah. I didn't do any heats or anything after that. Yeah, but actually, a great, a great gesture and a great experience oh. for, you, for you, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, there is quite a lot of pictures of you and John, obviously identical cars. I, you know, I've seen them um, quite a lot. And but one of the most iconic images for me that I remember is you with with those big hands that you mentioned. Have you still got them somewhere? Uh, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> no, they. Uh... They disappeared the year after in Holland. Um, we were rather drunk at the time, as usually happened in Holland, and we'd run out of beer. And uh, we were stuck at the track with nowhere to go. So they were part exchange for a couple of cases of, uh, of Dutch beer. So <laughs> something in Holland's gotten somewhere, Jonathan. <laughs> at the time, it was a good idea, but, but now maybe you'd, you'd like to have kept them. Yeah, you know... They, <laughs> All credit to my dad and my brother Paul. Uh, they made them out of uh, chicken wire and uh, and paper mache. I think they'd be a bit stinky by now, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I was in the garage all week um, with my mechanics rebuilding the car, and they were all week in the garage making a set of paper mache hands. So, <laughs> but it's all part of it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, in in your time in Formula One, you were you were definitely um, one of the bigger characters. And clearly you enjoyed your racing. Um, when I've been talking to other drivers, they have spoken about the level of commitment needed to be at the top of the sport. Was there ever a time when you thought, do you know what, I, I want to be that number one in Formula One? Or were you just simply, I just want to enjoy my racing? Uh, never, never, ever. You know, um, I was lucky that I actually led the points for one meeting <laughs> at Skegness 94 or something like that. Um, or even after a couple of meetings. But no, you know, for me, it was about enjoying it. Um, the only time I ever took it serious was sort of 94 and uh, my good friend Andy Webb um, he sort of we got very friendly with Webby and he said to me look at you you know you could be a proper driver in this job you know you know let's focus let's concentrate um, and I sort of drove how Andy wanted me to drive um, I, rem I remember it to this day there was uh, I think we'd done Skeggy and then it was on to Boston in the afternoon. I'd won heat and final at Skeggy. Uh, then we'd gone to Boston, I'd won the heat. And I'm walking the final and Murray Harrison, well, not walking it, but Murray Harrison uh, caught me up. And uh, I refused to move and he stuck me on a fence post. So no points. And I came off and Webby was spitting blood, you know, you should have moved over, let him through. And I'm like, Andy, I can't drive like that, you know. I, I can't be your precise racing driver. It's not... I'm there to, like, go out, scare myself silly as I'm coming off the corner. Uh, you know, I'm that close to the fence. Feel the power. So, yeah, you know, the commitment as well was too much. You know, I've seen the likes of Frank and, uh, and what they put in. I could never do that, Jonathan. To me, I needed to earn money more than I needed to race a car. Yeah. And then I think, you know, I talked to Paul last week, and he said he had to make a very conscious choice that, I can go down that route, but the amount of time and effort, do I really want that? And there's other things in my life that I need to be doing, like my business, like my, my personal life. And it is, isn't it? It's a huge, huge yeah. ask. It's a massive commitment. You know, 
in a way, I, I'm different to Paul and Frank and all those lot because I wasn't a second generation racer or anything like that. You know, we we were you know owned nursing homes and <laughs> rest homes and stuff like that. Uh, you know, Dennis has always been a business entrepreneur, but uh, so we were. You know, it wasn't inbred into us like it was the likes of Paul and everything. But yeah. you know, we we raced for the fun. Um, without mum and dad, I couldn't have done half of what I did. But um, it's one of those when when the, the fun outweighs when the pain outweighs the pleasure, it's time to sort of give it up. You know, and when you when you've got a young family and you're married and whatever, and they want to go on holiday, you've got to make a decision: Do I spend a thousand quid on tires and shockers? Do I spend a thousand quid going abroad? And you have to yeah. make that decision. Of course. No, thank you for that. Um, so thinking about when you were jumping into the race car, did you ever have any pre-race rituals, superstitions? Uh, yeah, I did actually. I always put my left glove on last. Even, even today, I mean, I did a little teams race last year with the stocks carts, um, and uh, I always put my left hand glove on last. Um, don't know why, but it's just I consciously do it. Uh, yeah. I strap the belts on, you know, you, you put them on as you do, but I always, that one goes on first, and then that one just, so yeah, <laughs> left, <You> left, <laughs> one last. No, always, no, if you'd lost your left glove, that would be terrible. Oh, clear. No, nothing worse, nothing worse. I'd, I, I won't go out. <laughs> Not that it did me any good, it didn't bring me any luck. I still ended up crashing and wrecking myself and putting myself in hospital several times. So, you know, perhaps I should change. Perhaps I should put the left glove on first. And, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Try it. If you, if you go back out and you start to start, you do that. See if it works. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 95 to 98, you left Formula One um, and you've already mentioned it. You went off to race Rebel. So, why did you have that break in your Formula One career? I've been chairman of the BSCDA. Uh, I was a, a very low ebb with the sport respondent. Um, I'd, you know, I'd been punched at the driver's AGM, believe it or not. Um, and at the time we were involved with Stoke and I'd done a bit of testing in the Rebels with hands. And I like the idea of everybody having the same kit. And then it's how good are you as a driver? Uh, and to be fair, in the early days, of Rebels, it was like that because you know I couldn't compete with Nigel Wharton in the F1s, but in the yeah. Rebels, I was on a par with him. So, you know, Roger probably mentioned it the other week. You know, Roger beat me, brilliant drive to beat me in the Rebels British at Coventry. Yeah. Um, but you know, he couldn't compete with me in the F1s back in the day, but in the Rebels, same equipment, he could. So, yeah. that's what particularly appealed to me about the Rebels at the time. And I've just had enough of F1, you know. Yeah. Um, being on the committee, um, being chairman, trying to race, you know, you have people take it out on you on track because they feel that everything that's going wrong in the sport is your fault, you know. Yeah. Oh, Van Wehman had it a lot when he was there years ago. Um, that's why I was a bit of an advocate for, I felt the chairman shouldn't be a racer. Um, yeah. You know, I thought, you know, somebody that's involved with the job, and because I actually followed Tim Manners chairman because... Yes. Tim, Tim was the chairman, and obviously he wasn't a racer, but he was involved with uh, Jimmy Wayman. But uh, Tim had uh, personal problems, so he had to step down, and that's how I ended up becoming the chairman. But I still think to this day that it, it's like, you know, I think Pete, Pete Folding, I think he'll, he will prove to be a brilliant chairman. Um, yeah. You know, he's got a lot of involvement, a lot of knowledge, 
but he's not there racing every weekend. It's not affecting his racing, basically. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, so obviously in the Rebels, you really enjoyed it, but then you came back into Formula One. Um, so what made you come back in stock cars again? <sighs> I fell out with Hans Kirimer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem, you know, um, basically, the first year, I loved, I loved it in the Rebels. Um, the second year, I was winning everything. And, you know, obviously, having my own formula now, I can see where I'm coming from. He didn't want the same person. But, to me, you can't try and alter it. And certain things happened, and so I was getting a bit fed up. And then, come the penultimate meeting, um, I was a lap down, and the guy, uh, it was Mark Wharton Eels, who I was battling with the points for, um, he comes past me on the very last lap of the final, and I was a lap down, I took him out. And... It basically ended up with a big fallout. Hands trying to ban me. We went to court. All sorts of rubbish. So, um, you know, it, it got silly. Um, but, uh, and that was why, basically, um, I fell out with the rebels, really. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, well, Hands is ill at the minute, but, you know, it took us about 12 years before we even spoke to each other again. But, uh, you know, at that time, the rebels were a good thing for me. I loved it. Um, I love the idea um, and and that behind it. But uh, as I say, if one man runs a job and you fall out with him, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So you mentioned you were the chairman. So that was '93. Uh, yes. yeah. yeah. So it's quite a difficult. Yeah, quite a difficult period in the sport, wasn't it? We had the drivers' strike. So, so why did you take on that role, and and did you enjoy it at all? Um, I. I actually, I wasn't even on the committee at the time. And what happened was the drivers went on strike and I actually got asked, believe it or not, by the promoters, if I would, a promoter, prominent promoter at the time said, will you come along and try and put some common sense into the job here? Because um, I had been on the committee before under Graham Lund all that. Um, so, as I say, I sort of got involved in the committee, wanted to modernise it, introduce the inside line, because um, Derek Holmes had gone and stuff like that. Um, did I enjoy it? No, not really. Um, it frustrated me a lot because I had a lot of ideas, um, a lot of things I wanted to do. But when you're ruled by a committee, you know, you can't always do your own thing. Um, so it frustrated me a lot. Look, as, as there is all the time, these two factions is those that want the sport to go one way, those that want it to go the other. You're sort of in, in the middle, you know, you've got your own opinions, but you can't necessarily express them because you want to, you know, at, at that time I had David Hodgson, um, you know, who wanted to take the sport to a very professional way. Um, then I had uh, Mark Gilbert, Brian, who wanted to try and bring it back. Uh, trying to, there's nine of you in that room and you trying to, you know, get it to go forward. Yeah. It was a very frustrating time, to be honest, Jonathan, but it, to me, it needed somebody sort of you know, calming influence at the helm, yeah. um, and that's why I I took it on. Sort of yeah. Um, but no, it affected my racing, it affected family life, time, committee meetings, but at that time, because you're on with a strike, um, so to speak, then... You, you know, you've got meetings left, right, and centre, and you're not claiming a penny for it, and it's all encompassing. So, yeah. um, you know, it, I enjoy being on the committee, being chairman, possibly not so much. 
No. Okay. And, and like you said, you, you have got a, and now and back then, huge big characters in the sport that kind of want to take it in a certain direction and to find like a middle ground must have been well, almost impossible, like, like you said. Yeah, it was, you know, it was very difficult. Um, you know, it was interesting listening to Roger the other day, you know, I've had some doers with Roger in the past over the way he wanted the sport to go, you know, because he had no money and, you know, um, and, you know, he, he was, when the A and B class sort of came about, I, I was heavily involved with that. And, you know, that, that was a mockery of the job because, you know, they got rules where you had your so-called supercars and then Bobby Burns is on an all-leaf-sprung car and they yeah. won't let go and race with the bees. So yeah. what's not? Oh, well, he's too good. Well, hang on, that's not about cars. That's not about drivers. Yeah. So, you know, it was just, it, it, it wasn't a particularly good time, but sort of almost after me, uh, I mean, the things we introduced at the time, the inside weight, the railway, and the sportsman tyre, you know, they weren't instant fixes. But for the period shortly after that, four years, whatever, the sport was fantastic. Yes. Uh, but it never sort of came to fruition while I was involved. Yeah, yeah, because it was future thinking ideas, those weren't they? That, that would sort of future proof it, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so you, you talked about there's the committee piece, and you know, you've got ideas and, and you were frustrated. So, do you think Formula One would benefit from almost having a, a Bernie Eccleston type figure, a bit similar to yourself in stock cars now, or Hans Kirimar in Rebel Wars? <laughs> um, yes, in a way, but that does have its drawback. You know, it would have to be a very special person and, and the right person, uh, you know, because that person has got to try and do what's best for the drivers as well as what's best for the promoters. You know, um, over the years, everybody, you know, we've all thought, oh, these promoters, they're having it away, they've had it away, this, that. And I've been there, you know, I know the other side. And particularly at times like now, you know, You've got to look at somebody, um, you know, Dean Woods, for instance. There's some meetings, some weekends that at this moment in time that he'd have been running eight, ten meetings, yeah. you know, and at the moment, nothing. So, you know, um, Steve Reese is another, you know, they've got all of them, to be fair, are really, really uh, struggling at the time, at, at this moment, as, as are the drivers. But to have one person run it, I don't think that person... I don't think you could get agreement from both sides. I think the way that they worked, I mean, ideally, yeah, it would be the perfect way to do it. But I just don't think it would happen. Um, uh, you know, I don't think there'd be enough um, trust there from both sides. Um, they'd both think that he was on the take or she was on the take. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it would be, you know, ideal world, but I, I don't think it would ever happen, Jonathan. Okay. So you mentioned um, about being a promoter. So was that a period in the, that you particularly enjoyed in the sport? Was it, and was it something that you'd maybe go back to in the future? Or was it something actually I've, I've done that? <laughs> well, I've blown my money there, yeah. Um, we did enjoy it. There was a lot of negatives to, to it. You know, and it wasn't just, you know, we were in partnership. It started off with Vince Moody and Tim Mann. And then it yeah. was Dennis and Tim, basically. But they put the money where the mouth was, uh, you know. They did incentives. We had 70-odd cars at one meeting. Every driver got paid an extra tenner if they did the parade lap. It was all sponsored money, but it was all to try and promote. Um, it got the drivers, but no punters. You know, the okay. punters still still didn't come. Um, so would I do it again? I, over 
10 years I've been involved in stocks cars, I've tried to buy three tracks. Um, not necessarily because I want to promote Formula Ones or whatever, but I sort of wanted to have a home base for stock cars. I had ideas of how I wanted things to do. Um, you know, I even, uh, you know, a, a short a while ago, I, uh, I was in discussions with another promoter about trying to take on Birmingham Wheels. Um, okay. to save it. Um, you know, that was nothing done behind Dean's back. Dean had said he didn't want to do it. Um, and, and we looked at it and it just, it, you know, it just wasn't viable. So I've been there, done it. Uh, I enjoyed it while we did it, but the biggest problem was we lived in York, the track was at Stoke, we didn't own it, um, you know, we were only renting it, a, a lot of other stuff going on. Um, so, uh, you know, but I would never say never, but the plan is to try and get out of motor racing and, you know, my plan was to have sold stock cars for now and be going and living abroad, but it's, uh, it was like I'm here for a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you mentioned about you, you tried to buy uh, three tracks, you know, on, on the back of being involved with stocks cars or owning stocks cars. You know, was it that you couldn't get them because they weren't available or that, that you couldn't get planning permission? Because people talk about we need new tracks. Is it really that difficult to get them on, on board? Um, one of the, I mean, to be honest, one of them, the track wasn't for sale, but I made an offer to, to, uh, to the promoter at the time. Uh, we had a meeting. I went, I went, to, across to see him and we had a meeting and me and my brother Paul put in an offer um, which he sort of half considered and then turned down. Um, I tried to buy Buxton Speedway track, yeah. um, not to run Formula Ones or whatever, but literally just to run the carts because we used to run the carts there. Yeah. But a lot of what people don't see with it is, you know, and, and it's going to come more to the fore, it's all the health and safety stuff, you know, the insurances, the uh, the track inspections. As much as people mock the ORC as you know this club or whatever, the ORC, Brisker, both of those organisations, mm -hmm. they are essential for us. Um, you know, as the Formula Ones and other formulas. You know, particularly with what's going on now after the Colin North incident, etc. So there's a lot more to it. Um, and, you know, I, I was very seriously, I'd spoken to Matt and, Bat and uh, Barry Watson about, you know, mm -hmm. possibility of opening up Buxton uh, Speedway track for stock carts, stock carts. I didn't want to run any other formulas there or anything like that. Um, but it just, it wouldn't happen uh, with that. But as far as other tracks, there's a lot of financial involved and a lot of financial risk, you know. Uh, and I'm sad to say that the crowds just aren't what they were. No. Um, so the problem is stock cars takes over your life and it makes you make stupid decisions um, <laughs> you know, and spend money that when you look at it as a pure hard businessman, you would yeah. never in your life look yeah. at the stock car meeting. Um, so, you know, really, I... I would never say never, but it would have to be the right thing, Jonathan. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, just going back to your stock car race in a little while. So, um, finished in '98, then 2012, you came back for a, a one-off season. So, so why? why? What, what happened? Was it a, a too much to drink one night? You thought that's it? I'm doing stock cars again. <laughs> Not far wrong. Um, 
No, basically what happened was I sold a, what was my stock cars transport. I had a big double deck Scania at the time. Um, and I sold it to Paul Montague, who was uh, tied up with Tony Smith and Co. Um, and part of the deal was he said to me, oh, you can have a go in your car at Christmas at Coventry. So I thought, yeah, why not? Um, so anyway, Monty blew his car up. So Tony Smith kindly offered to lend me his car. So I said, yeah, go on, we'll go. So anyway, we went to Coventry, went out. Um, I rolled a car, I hit the fence, I nearly climbed out. There's a video of me online, climbing yeah, the yeah. fence all the way down the straight. Uh, did it all and thought no more of it. Then all of a sudden, there's this thing called Facebook. And I start getting things pinging up on Facebook. Oh, great to see you racing again, Ian. Are you coming back? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And I was like, no, too old, you know, um, too old and don't want to spend me money. Well, if you ever come back, I'll, you know, I, I'd, I'd sponsor you. And, and honestly, Jonathan, it was like a momentum that built for me. And I had, for the first time ever in my racing career, I had people offering me money to race. <laughs> and I sat down and, and, and looked at it and I thought, right, well, I'll tell you what, I'll set a budget of 15 grand to buy a car. And yeah. if I can raise the sponsorship to do that, we'll do it. So I sort of put out that, yeah, if we could get enough sponsorship, then we'd do it. Next thing, somebody's gone, oh, whatever the car is, I'll give you half. Like, oh, right, fair enough. <laughs> uh, and then I had somebody else who was, well, I'll pay you diesel. So I'm like, well, you know, uh, I'll give you 200, uh, another person, give you 200 pound a meeting. So all of a sudden I was getting all this money coming from, and it was all through social media. So right, so reset up the Barmy Army and everything, and basically got offered a lot of money by a lot of people to have a go. So yeah. we had a go, um, and I'll be honest, at the end of this, I was terrible. I had a lot of car problems, but I was terrible. Uh, I can't drive the way they drive now. Um, but the one thing that we did was at the end of the year, I had a sponsor's day at Birmingham Wheels, and anybody yeah. who give me over 150, I invited along. And I had stock cars there, the F1 two-seaters, Rebels, Formula 2, and my F1. And all those people came along and we had it. I had the track for a bit. That probably cost me 1,500 quid, but probably earned me. Well, every single sponsor wanted to go again, and it would be 30 grand back per second. But Brilliant. the body wouldn't do it. <laughs> That's it. Brilliant. That's a great story. It's absolutely fantastic story. Did, so you mentioned about you couldn't you couldn't drive it like they were driving it now. So so what was the biggest difference that that you found from the from the sort of ten year gap that you had? To start as a nerf rail to bigger than the front bumpers we used to run. Uh, <laughs> when I sent the car up to France to get it uh, bumpered and nerfed when I first bought it, I went up there to have a look at it. It's got two v one box section on its side as nerf rails, and I'm like, Frank. It's a deal, and that's how it is. The biggest difference to me, Jonathan, was back in the day when I raced early, you know, the 80s and early 90s, there was a lot of front-to-back contact. Yeah. Um, what I didn't like was this, particularly on shale, where they literally throw it up the inside here and flip wheels and coming out the bend, particularly places like Bellevue and Sheffield. I don't, that, that to me is not, that, I don't know, it's dirty driving and high-class. And it isn't, it's how people have been brought up now, but, that was the biggest difference I noticed. And the other thing I found was that the tyres, they were gripping, 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 gone. Whereas right. before you could always feel like, oh, we're on the edge here, we're on the edge. With what were the good years at the time? I think so, yeah. Yeah, 
brick, 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 oh, okay, it's gone. And, you know, that's how it, that was the biggest difference. But it was just coming out the corner and flicking the front end. I was like spitting blood, honestly, when people did it. Um, I wasn't quick enough to catch them up and give them it again. <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to do it, let me see you in the mirror and do me from the, you know, that's it. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that, people do say that. It's, it's changed. The driving style has changed now. More potentially, you know, because of Kings Lynn, where you can go up against the wall and you can bounce off it. And the fences, like outdoor fences, you know. A lot of people say, oh, I don't like Sheffield. But that's what we raced against. You know, we had an acre. It's Hartlepool. You know, look at Hartlepool. Um, post and wire and what's happened with the the style of track now like you say I mean that classic thing a few years ago where Nick Soda just kept it planted and rode the wall all the way around the house I mean brilliant but you wouldn't have done that with a post and wire would he? <laughs> it wasn't absolutely not <laughs> okay best and worst thing about Formula 1 stock cars <sighs> the best thing it's got to be uh, the network of people you get to know, the drivers, um, like I say, love them or hate them, they'll always help you out, you know. Um, many years ago, we broke down on our way to Holland in the bus, and we were down the A1 near Peterborough somewhere, and all it took was a phone call, Eric Gravelin dragged him out of bed at two o'clock in the morning, and, you know, out he come with his little clapped out old Peugeot with Shep sat next to him, a Conrad for an AEC, you know, and even now, me two lads, they've got a tremendous network of friends throughout the country where they can go and stay. And, you know, that is the beauty. That and the power, you know, of, of them motors. That is the good thing. The bad thing is the time and the money. Yeah. It takes a, it takes a lot of time um, and it, it takes a lot of money. Um, yeah. you know, and, and having and, and balancing that, if you haven't got sponsorship and you're paying for it yourself, you've got to balance do I spend that on the house? Do I do that? You know, so the good thing is, as I say, the people, the network of people, the drivers, etc. But the bad thing is definitely time and money. Yeah, and the money. Brilliant. So, thinking about your stock car career, is there one memorable moment that stands out? So, obviously, we've talked about the board final, but is there anything else that really stands out? I'm, I'm super proud of that. Um, oh. To be honest, I don't think so. Um, probably when we debuted the uh, new lightweight tarmac car in Holland, um, and I came, I came from the back, and I was actually up to third, challenging for third when he threw a fan belt, um, and uh, I caught London. I, I actually hit Lundy going into the bend, and it threw the fan belt, and I think Lundy ended up second that year. Um, and then in the next race, I was winning it until. Two laps to go, and we'd got air in the brakes because we never tested the car, so um, we couldn't get. I couldn't brake as late as I wanted, so I really enjoyed that. Um, I used to do well in the uh, in the British events. You know, I was pole at Skegness one year. Even on my comeback year, I ended up with a decent position um, to the final. But uh, no, there's nothing I was. I just I enjoyed it, Jonathan, and I, you know we enjoyed it as a family. It, you know it kept us together. I would have never seen my eldest brother and my youngest brother and whatever if we didn't go racing on a weekend. So yeah. you know it was just the whole thing we loved, and still do. Yeah, absolutely. You've mentioned John Lund a few times. I thought there was an unwritten rule in stock cars: you, you couldn't hit John Lund anymore. Do you know? I, I, I don't know. Is that? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I watched him at the last Bellevue last year, and uh, he was in the thick of it. Was old John. 
you know, it's one of them. It's difficult, isn't it? It's like I remember, I remember old Frank going down to Blue Top, and you think Frankie Wayman Senior, a Blue Top, same as with John. But if they're enjoying it, and on his day, John can still mix it. You know, it's hard, hard, hard driver is John. Pe- people don't realise. Uh, you know, you look at him and he looks like he's on his Sunday afternoon drive, but. I've seen him with the likes that followed him and co back in the day. You know, he was he's hard as nails, his John. Um, but as long as he's still enjoying it, then why not? When, when I did an interview with Mick Sorda, I did answer. I asked him who's the hardest driver he's come across. Yeah, you know, Mick Sorda, he kind of, you know, really hard driver, if you like. And he said, he said John Rudman. He said he'd come across him at Bellevue. He, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know whether to hit him or not. He was just, what, what are you doing? I think, yeah, but it, it's got to the stage now, like, you know, with, like with John, it's like, do you want to hit him? Because he's, he's Sir John. You know? yes. uh, it's almost, do you want... I mean, you talk about hard drivers. You know, people that I raced with. Stuart was a hard driver. I, I always felt he was very fair. Uh, but, you know, Tilly, Burnsy. You know, I, I buried Bobby Burns and lived to tell the tale sort of thing. So, you know, Bob, <laughs> Bobby was one scary, scary blow. So, you know, th- there are hard drivers. But to me, you see... Kev Smith, I always got on great with Kev, and I never, ever had a do with Kev. But to me, I didn't like his style particularly because anybody can just keep the foot down and bury somebody, you know? Um, but to do them and carry on racing, that's that's when it's class, you know? Yeah. And John could do that, as could Peter, you know, as could a few others. Yeah, brilliant. And, and you buried Bobby Burns. I don't, I don't know what you were thinking that day. I, I don't <laughs> I'll tell you what, I did it. I mean, it was at Long Eden, and uh, I tried going up the inside of him a couple of times, and he chopped me up, he chopped me up, and I thought, right, you're out. He was in a Bashford car, and he was struggling with it like mad. And I stuck him in the pit gate, and I went in with him, and I was sort of looking around, and I looked across, and he just sat there like that. And he sticks it in reverse and sets off, and I thought, I'm getting out of this car, because he's going to come round, and he's going to ram straight into it. So I jumps over the fence, and by that time, his mechanic, Stevie's there, Stevie Alton, and Stevie's like, top of the list, Ian, top of the list. <laughs> He's like, oh, shit. Uh, but to be fair, he never got me back. He just intimidated me all the time. So, um, But he never ever did me, did Bob. And I ended up lending him my an engine for the Oxford World Final. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> So you were scared, you were scared, you had to give it him. You said, of course. <laughs> after I'd done, well, the red, red mist comes down, and then afterwards you're like, what have I actually done? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the only time I was genuinely concerned that this is going to come back big time. <laughs> <laughs> so we've done your scariest moment in stock cars, so what's your funniest moment in stock cars? Oh, half of them I couldn't repeat on here, really. Now we're talking at the track, or are we talking with some car people away from the track? We've, you know, we've had some funny moments uh, at, uh, you know, when, when we used to do, like, um, the overnighters from Skeggy to Middleton Hall or stuff like that, and we'd get to Middleton Hall and try and get in, because they had a nightclub there back then, and, uh, you know, we'd try and get in, and we couldn't get in, but our 14, my younger brother and his mate were 14, they were in there boogieing away all night. Uh, one of the classic, one of the funniest things that happened really was we had a lads' holiday away to Tenerife. Um, there was my lot, um, Paul Harrison's lot, uh, Ian Holden, uh, and some of Warren Hunter's lot, and we all went away to Tenerife and we had an absolute ball. But uh, 
anyway, myself, Paul Harrison, and uh, Ian Alden, and sort of we sort of got friendly with some girls and whatever, and we we decided to go down the beach to do a bit of skinny dipping, etc. And the laugh was they all took the Mickey out of me because they're all wearing the Levi Five O ones and the Calvin Kleins and this, and I've got my Georges from out of the T-shirt on and jeans <laughs> and everything. <laughs> we're skinny. We're off in the sea, messing about. Come back to his clothes, and all their stuff's gone. It's just mine. <laughs> it's, my, it's my Asda jeans. They've looked at them and gone now. We're not having them. <laughs> so the trouble was, the hotel was like eight mile away. So Harrison and Ian Holden, bollock naked, <laughs> and the and they're right behind the wall, and I'm stood there stopping a taxi because I'm dressed. I stopped the taxi. These two naked come running out. Taxi drivers like we're not having any of that. <laughs> So that that was a cracking holiday, was that that, that we had? Um, but you know, there, there's been loads, Jonathan. There's so many. You know, I, I mentioned briefly the one about Eric Gravelin when we meant, you know, put we reboard an engine and put a piston and con rod in it at the side of the road and uh, oh. the Holland. There were loads of them. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Not like, so sure. Skeggy double headers. You know, watching Paul Harrison. Jump, try and jump the dike and ending up in it, and how he didn't get septicemia, I have no idea. <laughs> so, no, we've, had, we've had some great times, and you know, that's what we've tried to redo in stop starts, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, and like you say, it comes back to that you're doing it for the fun and enjoyment of the people that are there as well, and you make great friends for life, don't you? In, absolutely. You know, the, the social side, the social side in Formula One's, you know, I'm not in it so to speak so i don't really i mean i look at the young kids the sorders the sergeants and all these what and they seem to be having a ball which we did you know but the world's a different place now you know uh, when i think of the stuff we used to do i, I remember pushing pete folding up the m1 motorway at one o'clock in the morning he was in his toyota hilux and i was in my peugeot and i'd crept up behind him and just suddenly started pushing him, you know, with my lights off. And, you know, he, God, you get locked up for it now. Stuff <laughs> we could do back then, yeah, you know. Absolutely. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Ian. Um, bit of a random question, but considering what you've been up to during the lockdown, do you think you could survive in the wilderness for a month on your own? On my own? Yeah. I like, well, I say I like company. Uh, I like certain people's company. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could hack it, Jonathan. Um, you know, it's I've always I've always been pretty. I cannot I can be self sufficient when you've got somebody there as willing to do things for you. You'll let them work, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I can I, I could hack it. I'm pretty certain. In fact, it might be quite blissful. <laughs> it was potentially. Um, you've had two. You had two fantastic ideas that were designed to. Uh, promote and better the sport. One of them was the the driving school. Um, so, can you explain what that was, and also whether you think it's something the stock cars could do with at the moment? It was just one of my hairbrain schemes. The thing is, I saw a lot of people um, wanting to have a go, but were scared to go out with thirty other lunatics on track. Which you know you can't you can't blame them. So I sort of thought, well, why not? I used to hire out a car all the time. My shale car, I used to hire it out on a Sunday. I'd race it on Saturday, and nine times out of ten, if it was in one piece, we'd hire it out on a Sunday. That's what paid for me racing. Um, so I had the cars, and I just thought, I'm sure there's people would love to have a go in a car, but not in a race. Yeah. And so I had a word with John Haynes, who was a promoter at Northampton at the time, and he thought it was a brilliant idea. 
Um, and so basically what you did is, I can't remember how much it was, it wasn't a lot of money, but you paid us a certain amount of money. Um, you came along, we gave you a talk about the car. We had my car there, my tarmac car. We gave you a talk about the car. We'd go in the classroom. We'd talk about lines, this, that, the other, how to drive the car. We'd then divide them into two groups. And group one would drive. We had two cars. Jeff Nichols, we hired a car off. Um, he had a spare car. So first group would go out in my car, which was set a certain way. And the other group would go out in his. As one came off, the other went on, etc. Um, and then we'd have a stop for a spot of lunch, then we'd swap. So if you'd been in Jeff's car, you now went in mine. Then we'd go back into the classroom and we'd talk about the differences in the car and how the braking. So it, it was very good. And a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people, it was a good thing for the sport. The likes of Mike Ashcroft, um, yeah. a guy called John Walker, who's no longer yeah, yeah, yeah. John Walker. There's a lot of people came to those driving schools, then took the next step to hire a car off me for the hire car and go on, go on and race. So it was a good thing. And at the time, what we did, which was really good, was the, uh, the, the management board decided at that time that it was too much for a kid to jump from a Mini into a 600 brake horsepower formula. And therefore, they have the five laps now, don't they? Yeah. And you have to do. Well, back then, you had to do a driving school. And I had to say, yay or nay, whether you were good enough. Okay. Um, so it was used for that as well. So yeah, it was a good thing. Um, yeah. I love doing that, and I met some great people in it, and you know we had we had some good times. Um, I've never failed one person, and so you know it was good. Okay, because I think it is like I say, it's quite difficult from a if you kind of outside the sport to almost come into Formula stock cars. It, you know, it tends to be sort of sons of drivers and and, and relatives, etc. So. You know, I think it's quite a good idea, potentially, to help people get into the sport and show them what it is all about. Yeah, I think, you know, um, almost like practice days are a good thing to give people a chance because, you know, those blokes out there, they're serious. Yeah, they don't deliberately go out and hit a novice or whatever, but there are times when a car might be doing 25, 30 mile an hour less than a top man, yeah. and he's no choice but to put somebody into him or vice versa. You know, it, it's... It's a scary place to be, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. So alongside the driving school, um, you did the two-seater um, with Frank Grimm Jr. So, you know, the, the first one that's ever been built. So where did that come from? Where did the, the idea come from? It, another of my hairbrain. I actually, it came about because of the McLaren F1. Uh, they built it. And I saw that and I thought, you know what? Wouldn't that be brilliant to go around and have a passenger? Uh, you know, text somebody around. Uh, and I spoke to Tim Mann about it, and Tim was like, oh, yeah, count me in. Because although Frank built, well, myself and Frank built the cars, and Tony Burkitt from New Zealand and a couple of the Kiwis that were across, we all built the cars. Um, but it was Tim and I that basically financed it, and Frank did the work. Frank's input was the labour, etc. Tim and I supplied the cars, the parts, et cetera, et cetera. So we built the very first one, which we debuted um, at the practice session before our world final. And uh, it was a toss of the coin for I took Frank out or Frank took me out. Anyway, he won and he took me out. And uh, But I think I scared him more than he scared me. Because <laughs> he was like, breaky and break. I'm like, no, not yet, Frank. But I'll tell you what, they are 
superb. They were brilliant to drive. They were brilliant fun. Uh, I still do. Well, I mean, Neil Fittenbaum off me, he doesn't use them very much. He, he did an event up at Tumanby near Scarborough two years ago. Yeah. And we were doing rides then, and I, I still love doing it. it. It was brilliant, you know. We we had some real fun with them. Um, but problem was, they're an expensive tool, um, and to try and get, you know, to make money out of them was very difficult. So you know, yeah. uh, not one of my better financial decisions. Right. Okay. I was going to say, were they a success? So that that was kind of one of my questions. You know, did you think that? I guess successful in promoting the sport, but financially for you, not not so much. Financially, not because when you look at it, Jonathan, uh, realistically, you've got to hire a venue, which you know, uh, three hundred quid a time. Say, yeah. I would never do. You know, I had proper insurance, which was three hundred quid for the day. So you're at six hundred quid before you even start. You're on two hundred quid with the diesel to get a car there. Well, obviously, Frank had one. I had one. So you're then on 400, so you're at a thousand quid before you've turned a wheel and you're charging 50 quid a time. That's 20 people at 50 quid a time before you've made a penny. Yeah. So financially, no. Uh, fun wise, best fun we've ever had. Uh, yeah. you know, knocking seven bells out of each other. I remember watching Speaky and Frank for Cow and Beef and I was like, just yeah. mad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, brilliant, thank you. I guess uh, fans who are newer to the sport know you as the owner of Stockscocks, maybe don't know so much about your previous racing career in Formula Ones. Um, so why did you make the decision to buy Stockcars? It's a great budget entry formula, you know, it gets anybody out on track. So what, why did you buy it? What was your vision for, for Stockscars? Almost something when you asked me to do this, I was quite surprised thinking we wanted to <laughs> No, nobody knows me. Well, I, you know, the newer people don't know, but they know me as Mr. Stocks Carts. The reason I bought Stocks Carts was, at the time, I got two lads that wanted to race. Um, I didn't want them to do brisker minis because the conceived thing at the time wasn't too expensive. Uh, whether they were or not, I never went that far down the road. But speaking to people, you know, they're too expensive, too much commitment, too much travelling, this, that, and the other. So. We actually looked at going into grass tracking, um, autographs, which I'd never even seen, but we'd got four tracks within an hour's drive from here. So I didn't have to spend a load of time in the garage. You could nip off on Sunday morning, go and race, or so I thought. You know, at the end of the day, I ended up with two cars that probably I could have bought two mini stops with. But yeah. I was looking for something for my lads to do, and I saw a video online of the stock carts up at uh, Crimond in-car yeah. footage. And I just thought, these are mad. You know, they're absolutely mad. So long story short, we found out who was running them. It was all in disarray, this, that, and the other. And I just thought, you know, no. Nah, it's through, as I mentioned earlier, I was frustrated on the BSCDA committee. And I yeah. thought, if I can get a formula, similar to what Hans has done, and, you know, take my hat off to him, you live or fall by your decisions. I've got nobody telling me what I do, you know, within reason. I've got to comply with rules and regulations as everybody else does. But as far as the formula and the development of it, you know, it it lives or falls by my decisions. Yeah. Uh, and that part of it, you know, call me control freak, call me what you want. That part of it I love. And we are probably one of the best social sides, even yeah. better than Formula One sometimes. If you ask people like Matt Watson, when we go to Buxton for a double A, 
stocks. It's crazy. But it's about the fun. And the stocks cards, you know, we know what they are. We take them what they are. Yeah. To me, they're the worst thing I've ever given in my life. But when you six inches off the floor, you've got five, six, seven cards close around you down the straight. It's adrenaline. And you see yeah. that same rush. Uh, and, it, you know, you know, Jonathan, you've raced it's two. Yes. Um, at the end of the day, it's been good. You know, I look at people, James Bailey, Roger Bailey, race F1s. Um, they yeah. came to the stock cart. Look at John Brown in the uh, in the V8s. You know, he's come via stocks cart. You look at the Thackers in the, um, in the F2s, stocks carts. So it's a great, to me, it's a great feeder formula for youngsters. It's also a good formula for those who've had a racing career and just want a bit of fun on track. So it works that way for them. And then those who, it's what they can afford. A lot of our drivers are Brisker fans. You know a lot of the people. You know, the stock yeah. car fans, you'll see them at a lot of Brisker meetings if we're not racing. Um, so we've got a great bunch. And and I get, I actually get more pleasure out of watching kids race, seeing these kids develop from, you know, 10-year-old kids up to now racing Formula 1s over the past 10 years. Brilliant. And yeah. uh, and I, I do love it. Yeah, it's a business. I earn a couple of quid. You know, we don't earn fortunes, but um, I've always said it's a business and we're there to try and make money, but it's about enjoying it. And I find, you know, we've got a good link with the micro F2s, which I think, again, is a brilliant formula, uh, which Jason and Claire Holden have a lot of control over. Yeah. And what, what people have got to realise is that it's people like us that are setting these kids, obviously as well as the parents, but we're setting these kids up for life. You know, yeah. we're teaching them the rights and wrongs. We're teaching them rules, discipline, stuff like that. And so there's quite a lot of responsibility with it on the junior side. But yeah. as I said, when you see them mature, it, it, it's brilliant. So, yeah. you know, I bought it basically because I couldn't find out else for the kids to race that I could afford. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very long answer, but that's, that's the short of it. No, it's yeah. brilliant. That's brilliant. And, it, and, it's, and it's doing really well, like you say. It's, and it's a, great, it's a great formula. So, you know, all, all credits here. Yeah. Um, so I guess in a similar kind of vein, and you've also got a vested interest in your own formula. Um, a lot of debate on the internet at the moment about are we going to have a season this year? What does that look like? You know, what, what's your view? For me, I'd rather not, to be honest, Jonathan. Um, it, I think we've we, we've got to try and have some sort of a season so people can understand what the new norm is going to be. Um, but you know, like I touched on earlier, the promoters. How can a promoter open a stadium, hopefully get seven, eight hundred people in there, make them socially distanced without health and safety coming along and saying, you're doing this, you're doing that wrong, you're doing the other wrong, here's a fine, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, I read the ORC statement that they've put out to say that you know, they're going to attempt to do practicing in certain places. It will be driver plus one only um, due to uh, social distancing, etc. And then you've got people spouting off going, oh, God, what's the point if I can't come with me mate or this or that? But it's what's got to be. So I think there's got to be some racing so we can get used to the new norm. But yeah. to me, I'd just like to see it all start again next year, to be honest, and right. which is financially suicidal to me because I'm losing money every week when we're not racing. Um, but, you know, to me, I, I just think, yeah, the test, the practice days are good. Um, where they I don't think a promoter could financially viably run an F1 meeting. No. Okay. 
Okay, thank you for that. I think I think like you say it, what people are struggling with is the new norm. I mean, this time last year you'd never dream of queuing up to go in a supermarket, but now it's that's accepted that you know when you go to a supermarket you have to queue up to go in and you have to walk a certain way. And you know, stock cars maybe got to adapt a little bit, certainly in the short term, to enable it to, to kind of get going and people need to accept it is gonna be a bit different. So yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot more stuff along the lines with that, you know. Um Particularly when you, you, you're talking, um, you know, we're crying out for new tracks. Every, everybody says, you know, this, that, and the other. But noise is a big, big thing. And I remember I was involved when they first introduced silencers, you know, and everybody, I was one. I'm not running silencers. Well, you've got a choice. You run them or you don't have a car. And I think, I think personally that that's another thing that's going to come along. Um, like they do in Holland, they run double silencers. I yeah. think it's the only way you're going to be able to get into places that there's a possibility of racing at, you know, um, where you're not stuck out in, you know. But even like Buxton has noise issues, as definitely sounds in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, there's a lot of things, I think, within the sport, small things that are going to have to change for it to continue and for it to grow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you. Um, last week, I asked Paul Harrison... A question around who we'd like to self-isolate with um and well, he chose you he did, yeah. he chose you. uh you're one of the people so you, you i would ask you the same question but don't feel under any obligation to say paul harrison right so we can have that disclaimer first so no. you're gonna <laughs> you can I'm, choose I'm these interviews jonathan right and i can't believe these drivers there's something wrong with them because i i thought if he asked me that and i thought i know exactly i'll have shannon ellis lisa arter <laughs> and <Jimmy. laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, because uh, what is it? It's uh, a past, a present, and another formula in it or something. Yes, yeah, that's it. So my past would definitely be Stuart Smith. Uh, yeah. You know, he was my hero as a kid, and I was fortunate enough to spend some crazy, crazy nights at uh, dinner dances and stuff with Stuart. Um, and some time in Holland. You know, he, he was brilliant with Stuart when you got him right. He was a different character when he was racing, you know, okay. but away from the track, we, you know, we had doing the boss pantomimes and that. God alive, it was, it was, un, it was unbelievable. So, yeah, I definitely have uh, Stuart. And it would be Paul Harrison, believe that. It's a love in between me and Paul. But it would be Paul because he's just, he's a laugh. Whenever we do anything, we're, you know, he was guest of honour at the Stocks Cast a couple of years ago. What a night we had. Because um, he likes to drink, as does Stuart, same as myself. Uh, so, you know, it would actually be rubber. I thought about a few rubbers, you know, but it, 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 it would be rubber. Um, from another formula, I would have said Gordon Moody because he's, he's a proper party animal. He's got, we've had some oh, yeah. in uh, LA's and the boat house at Skegness, but the only trouble with Gordon is I can't understand the word he bloody says. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when he's on a drink. It gets a thicker accent. So, uh, who would I pick? To be honest, I'd actually probably pick somebody from Stocks Carts. And there's a couple in Stocks Carts. It would either be, well, he's not really a driver. Well, he's driven a stock car, but his kids race, which would be Russell Andrews, because uh, he, he can do a tickle. But a man that you know, um, none of these lot will know, but uh, a guy called Graham Wheat. Uh, yeah. Now, Graham... He's a legend within the stocks cars and uh, on our double headers and our nights out and everything. He, he, he drinks with the best of them. So, yeah, it would be Wheaty from the stocks cars as another formula. It uh, would be Rubber from current drivers and it would be Stu Smith Senior 
from the Alzheimer's. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Great answer. Great answer. And you can message Paul afterwards and say, I, I chose you, Paul. I chose you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. My final question for you, Ian. Um, your top three drivers of all time? Stuart, no, yes. senior, obviously, without question. Um, fantastic. Just um, following on from him, it, it, it will be close between um, Frankie and uh, Andrew, to be honest, but Frankie Jr., I think purely because I've put him in, in he's borrowed cars off me in the past as Frank several times that are nailed, and he's, he's just driven the backside off him. Um, I think Andrew is a superb driver. It's almost like a Senna and Prost. I think Andrew Smith is more a Prost and Frankie is more a Senna. Um, so, you know, which then sounds contradictory when I say that I'd go Frankie second, but I wouldn't go Andrew in third. Um, third place, I would actually, I mean, there's Willie, there's, there's loads of them, but I would actually go for Peter Folding. Oh, okay. Uh, I highly rate Peter. I still do, I, you know. He was a good, hard, no-nonsense driver. Um, quite selfish at times, in a way. Um, you know, no two ways about it, but um, he could drive good Peter. It's just some people you like to watch. And if I wasn't racing, I'd love to watch Peter. Yeah. Now the cab. So, yeah, I think it would be Peter in third, Frankie second, and the maestro number one. Brilliant. A great top three. A great top three, Ian. Ian, I could genuinely talk to you all evening. It's, it's been so enjoyable. Thank you very much for, for your time tonight. No before we go, is there anything you'd like to add before we, we disappear? No, I just hope that, you know, we can we can all get back racing uh, at some point. Um, I don't want to be, you know, the fans are a great bunch of people um, that, that we've got in, in, in stock car racing. Um, you know, I hope I hope that when we come back, they can be flexible enough to understand some of the things that have got to happen within the sport. Um, and, you know, just, we all want to go racing, don't we, Jonathan, at the end of the day. But to, to do that, we're going to have to change. So yeah. that's about it. Ian, thank you so much for that. Um, and, you know, fingers crossed, we see you at a track um, this year, maybe. All right. Cheers, okay. Ian. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.